In this week's show, our guest is Sid George, a native Houstonian with an undergraduate degree in physics, economics, and an MBA. He has studied Western civilization and the study of religions uh, for many years, and he leads a discussion group on the historical Jesus. Welcome to the show, Mr. George. Uh, thank you. Glad to be with you. Our topic today is the Jesus-Mithras connection. For many years, I've come across this online and and seen uh, people discuss it, but I've never gotten a good grasp on uh, all the information, so we would like to delve into this topic with you. Um, I was um, impressed with your group. Uh, are you still having the meetup group where you discuss the historical Jesus and other religions? No, that's uh, completed now. We're, we're, we're done with that series. Uh, what's your next project that you're, you're planning for, for a discussion group? Uh, I don't have a next project right now. I'm kind of taking a break and uh, planning to do a little bit of travel, actually. Well, um, during your discussion group uh, about the historical Je Jesus, you mentioned the origins of Christianity being derived from the Greek mystery religions and that their standard beliefs come from the cult of Mithras, except uh, the main one being the, the crucifixion. Uh, in our conversations, you mentioned the books The Mysteries of Mithra by Frank Cumont and the more recent volume titled The Origin of the Mithraic Mysteries by David Ulancey. Can, can you share with our audience a brief summary of the information contained in those books? Oh, sure. The uh, first book, uh, The Mystery of Mithra by Cumont, that's really the original foundation of uh, the study of uh, Mithraic religion. He was the first one to come out with a blockbuster book. And this was, you know, over 50 years ago. I don't know the exact date. But he's the uh, one that did the fundamental research and everything on this. There have been other books, and the most recent one on this subject is The Origins of the Mithraic Mysteries. And uh, that's a very good book. Those two I really recommend if anyone wants to delve into this in some detail. Uh, of all the ones I've read, those are the two best. And uh, would you like me to discuss some of that? Sure. Um, there is, it's, a, it's a unique uh, take from, from you and these books because um, we've had shows about um, the Gnostic Jesus, the Necromancer Jesus, the all different types of perspectives on, on the Jesus movement and the historical figure of, of Jesus. Uh, we would like to hear uh, what have you found uh, based on these books. Okay. Uh, basically, a short description of all this is that uh, uh, the circumstantial evidence for the existence of Jesus I find to be overwhelmingly in favor that there was such a person. There was a Jewish rabbi, an important Jewish rabbi, that uh, uh, did lead a minor revolt against the Roman Empire and because of that was crucified. And apparently uh, did not die on the cross if the... Uh, New Testament is believed he survived the crucifixion and uh, walked out of his tomb. 
And this was an amazing thing. Even though other people have survived crucifixion, like uh, Josephus writes about in his histories, uh, the Mithratic Church that existed at this time found this to be, apparently found this to be amazing also, and thought that Jesus was uh, a much better Savior than Mithra was. Mithra's, uh, the, these Mithratic relig- mysteries were Savior religions, one of several different Savior religions that were in popular at the time. And uh, basically, a group, a large group of uh, church fathers, a father led a church in the Mithratic religion, a large group of these decided to switch from Mithra to Jesus, to take this Jewish rabbi as their savior character. And uh, many of the rituals and practices of the early church and of the Catholic church today can be traced back to uh, what was performed in the Mithratic Mysteries. And uh, I think it might be beneficial if I give you a little background on on uh, what the practices were of the Mithratic Church, and then so you could see a comparison to what uh, is done today in the Catholic Church. Uh, the religion goes back to Zoroasterism, a Persian religion in which the myth was there is a sun god whose name I never can pronounce accurately, so I won't even try now. He, uh, he had a group of angels living in heaven, and there were humans living on earth. And there was an uh, archangel that tried to lead a revolt to overthrow our sun god. And he was not successful, and he was kicked out of heaven. And he came to earth to recruit a large force to have another battle with the sun god. To oppose this, the sun god had a son himself, Mitra, that he sent to earth. And Mitra was uh, born in a grotto out in the field. His birth was witnessed by shepherds in the field and starburst in heaven. And Mitra emerged from a rock carrying a sword to fight evil and a torch to light the way. And Mithra's job was to recruit mankind to fight evil in the world. And later, Mithra was reborn into heaven from an egg. And uh, before he did this, he had a last supper with the 12 signs of the Zodiac. All right. That's the Zoroaster mythology. Now, in about, I'm going to say, 128 BCE, about this period of time, a uh, Greek scholar on the island of Rhodes and the scholar's name 
I have a hard time pronouncing it. Hypocasis, H-I-P-P-A-R-C-H-U-S. Made an astounding discovery. Based on play tablets and knowledge coming from Persia, going to the West, this knowledge, he was able to prove that the equinox, the vernal equinox and the autumnal equinox, moved. That sounds, doesn't sound too important, but uh, essentially the equinox is uh, computed or found by uh, the intersection of the path of the sun, the apparent path of the sun in the sky, and the equator, where those two lines, those two circles intersect, those are the equinox. And it was, it was thought that the equinoxes were fixed for eternity. Well, scientifically, that's not correct, because uh, even though the ancients didn't know this, they moved because the Earth does not always point to the North Star. It follows a procession, goes around in a little circle, and uh, the North Star, the axis of the Earth, only points to the North Star uh, a few centuries out of about 20,000 years. Well... This was important knowledge at the time that the equinoxes moved. And uh, the mythology or the scientific belief of the day back, uh, back then was that the planets that they saw in the sky, what we call planets now, they moved and they knew they moved. And the reason they moved is because a god pushed them. The god of Mercury pushed Mercury around. The god the goddess Venus pushed Merc- uh, Venus around. God of Mars pushed the planet Mars around and stuff like that. And they could tell that by looking at how the planets moved based on the background stars, the stars that were fixed and did not move. Now, if the vernal equinox and autumnal equinoxes moved in the sky, the only explanation they had, there must be some god that pushed the background stars and moved them. What God was this? Well, the only one that was free at the time, apparently, was Mithra, <laughs> the son the son of uh, the uh, Zoroastrian sun god, Mithra, that had been sent to Earth to create everything. And so they started a new religion called... Mithraic Mysteries. And Mysteries because you had to join the religion to learn all the facts and all the secrets in there. It wasn't available to the public. You had to join this church to learn this stuff. And there were other mystery religions around at the time. These mystery religions, I might uh, point out, started after Pythagoras the Greek uh, living in uh, southern Italy at around, I'm going to say, 400 BCE, somewhere in that period of time. Even though we know Pythagoras from uh, geometry, 
the sum of the squares of hypotenuse is equal to uh, the square of the other two angles, of other two sides of the triangle. Everybody learned in geometry in high school. But in Pythagoras' day, he was known as a great religious teacher. And uh, before Pythagoras, all gods, even Yahweh in the Old Testament, these were supreme deities to be placated. They did terrible things to humans. And if you didn't placate them, they would uh, do terrible things to you. For example, uh, Yahweh tortured Job, Job in the book of Job. Yahweh murdered Job's children to win a bet, by the way. Yahweh committed mass murder by wiping out towns like Solomon and Gomorrah. Uh, Yahweh would commit committed genocide by killing most of the humans on the face of the earth with floods. And Yahweh was no different than Zeus or other gods in existence all over the earth. These were uh, gods that could do terrible things to humans. And so they had to be placated with sacrifices. Well, after Pythagoras' teaching, he said, no. While you may should do sacrifices to gods, you should be able to ask them to do things for you. They should help you. And if you took ritual baths, cleansed yourself like five times a day, took a ritual bath, and became ritually ritualistically pure, you should be able to ask these gods to help you to find uh, a husband for your daughter, to win this battle, to do whatever. I mean, you could pray to God for favors. Okay, and gods weren't something just to be placated and feared. You you can you know respect them and ask them to help you and stuff like this. And if some particular god wasn't helping you enough, switch the gods. You know, start praying to another god. Okay, uh, and after this, they started uh, mankind or in the Mediterranean area, other religions started developing, savior religions, particularly. Uh, previously, when you died, you went to the underworld. You weren't tortured or anything, but you were bored. Nothing went on. And the only way you could get to heaven, there was a heaven where the gods lived, was for the Roman Senate to vote you in as a god. Otherwise, you were condemned to this boring afterlife. Well, these mystery religions said, no, if you follow our teachings, you can go to heaven. Anyone can go to heaven. Okay? And they became popular. And this new religion that was formed, uh, the Mithratic religion, was one of these mystery religions, new mystery religions on the streets all over the Mediterranean. In fact, in many Greek cities, uh, on an intersection, three or four of the corners of the intersection, there probably some preacher there pitching his mystery religion to the population. 
and trying to get converts to join the church. And uh, my church was one of these religions. And, uh, well, originally they worshipped Mithra. And these churches were also kind of astronomical places also because they studied the stars. They had to be able to determine how the planets moved and particularly how to calculate where the vernal and autumnal equinoxes were. Okay, it took a little scientific knowledge. And to acquire that knowledge, you had to join the church. Now, and they used the word church. They were churches. Uh, in these churches, when you would go into the church as a member, there were uh, a bowl, either water, honey, or ox blood. And you would dip your finger into the water, and you would make the sign of a cross on your body. You'd say, Father, Son, Holy Life Force. Those are the three entities that they would mention in making a sign of a cross on their chest. And uh, they met, of course, on Sundays, because it was a sun-based religion. Other religions, uh, you know, like. If you worship Saturn, you met on Saturdays. Well, this organization, it was a sun-based religion, so they met on Sundays. Uh, There were seven levels of membership to this. And let's see if I can remember what they are. It's been a little while. The first three were the raven, the uh, the occult, and the soldier. Those are the lower three. And anyone could become a raven. In fact, I suspect even children could join as a raven. I don't know that for a fact, but uh, it's very possible. And as you learn more about the religion, as you learn more about astronomy, as you became more educated in this, you were able to move up in rank. And the first three were fairly easy. You could essentially keep your day job and still uh, function in the church. The interesting thing about the soldier, once you reach the soldier level, uh, you were branded on the forehead with a a branding iron uh, right above the bridge of your nose in a ceremony. And this meant, this was a mark that you had reached the third level of, of a soldier. And this was very, this made the religion very popular among the Roman legion. <laughs> uh, because if, uh, if you were at that rank, you were not sp- supposed to accept any monetary rewards for how you lived and acted at that level. And then the Roman legion, uh, when soldiers did something very brave in battle, they were rewarded, not with some little medal or something, not with a ribbon. They were rewarded with a a crown of gold. (laughs) They were given a gold crown. And uh, if you were 
uh, of the rank of soldier in the Bithratic religion, you were supposed to, when they awarded you this crown, put it on your head. You were supposed to brush it off your head and saying, no, mitre is my only reward. Well, this became very popular with the uh, treasurer of the that particular legion <laughs> because if the soldier didn't want the reward, that treasurer got to keep the money. <laughs> so this is a religion that was uh, encouraged in the Roman legion. Uh, now, the next three levels that you go to are the lion, the Persian, and runner of the sun. Those are three different levels. Like I say, you took it took a little study to calculate where the uh, equinoxes are located in the sky. Even today, most of us can't do it. Uh, I used to be able to do it with a computer program. <laughs> but other, they didn't have computers back then. Uh, so it took a little knowledge. And... Uh, you practically had to quit your day job and work full-time in the church to acquire the rest of the knowledge. Now, at these levels of lion, Persian, and runner of the sun, you were baptized in honey on your forehead, essentially. And uh, after you learned everything there was to learn, in the Mithridic Mysteries, learned all the mysteries, learned why the Fernal Equinoxes moved and everything, you could become a father of the church. And in this, there was a massive ceremony for this. And one of the hallmarks of it, you were, you would stand in a trench and an ox would be slaughtered over your head and you would be drenched in blood. And the blood is supposed to wash away your sins. Any sins that you had would be washed away by the ox blood. And you were baptized in ox blood. And after this, you were able to start your own church. You were a father. And later they had fathers of fathers, essentially what we call bishops today. Only they didn't call them bishops. That word didn't arise at the time. But they worship. Mithra, the sun, as opposed to uh, the sun god, his father. They didn't worship his father. That was worshipped by the Zoroasterists. And uh, the Greeks worshipped God, the sun. And Mithra was considered the king of kings. He was called, referred to that as the king of kings. He was above all kings everywhere. And... uh, Now, one of the peculiar things about uh, this religion is that it was only open to men. (laughs) Women couldn't join. But the women had auxiliary organizations, sister organizations to Mithraic religions, other, like the civil religion and Atheus, A-T-T-I, Atis religion. These were also mystery religions. But they were open to women. And the Mithraic religion was only open to men. Now, the uh, Mithra, like it said, he 
before he ascended to heaven, he had a last supper with the 13 signs of the Zodiac, with the 12 signs of the Zodiac. And uh, at this point, he would told the uh, congregation to eat this bread as a symbol of eating my body and drink this wine as a symbol of my blood. You know, perform this ceremony each time, you know, each Sunday, the sacraments. And, uh, in fact, uh, the father of the church, each Sunday they'd meet, there would be a loaf of bread that we brought in with a cross on the bread, representing the intersection of the uh, equator with the path of the sun to identify the equinoxes. It was a cross cut in the bread. And this bread would be passed around to the members who would eat a piece of the bread, symbolizing cannibalism, symbolizing eating Mithra's body. And there would be uh, red wine that was mixed in with water. I don't know why they did this, but anyhow, it was supposed to be magical. And in doing this, this would represent Mithra's blood, and they would pass this around, you drink this. Another act of cannibalism, eating someone's body and drinking their blood is pretty cannibalistic. I don't know the origins of that uh, exactly, where Mithra picked that up. Cannibalism had pretty much gone out of style in the Mediterranean area at this time. But that's what they did. Um, Well, apparently, after Jesus' crucifixion and his survival of it, and him walking out of his tomb, uh, that was very unusual. And it happened before, but uh, not to a religious leader. And it was as if he had risen from the dead, as if he had. And it's very easy to go from as if he rose from the dead to he rose from the dead. Okay. Well, this is apparently very uh, impressive to church fathers around the Mediterranean area. And uh, this is all uh, circumstantial. There's no written documentation that survives any of this. But apparently they decided to switch from worshiping Mithra to worshiping uh, Jesus. And uh, now some of the things that, uh, you know, this idea that Jesus died for our sins, Okay, this comes from Mithra, uh, Mithra. It does not come from Jewish religion. It's under Jewish religion, or under Jewish law, I should say, you can't punish someone else for your sins. It's illegal. As it's illegal in English common law, we can't do it today. We can't punish someone else for your sins. This is completely uh, anti Judaism. Also, uh, uh, this idea uh, coming from uh, 
you know, what sin was did man commit and everything. Go back to uh, uh, Adam and Eve. Adam ate from the tree of knowledge, so he got kicked out of heaven. That was his sin. Uh, as opposed to eating from the tree of ignorance, I guess that's what he should have eaten from. Uh, but anyhow, this idea that you could be punished, someone could be punished, someone else could be punished for your sins is completely, completely unjudaic. Also, the cannibalism expressed eating someone's body and drinking their blood. I mean, that is, no Jew would ever do that. That's completely un-Judaic. Um, I mean, just fundamental. But it was completely within the realm of the Mithraic religion. They did this. So it was nothing to switch. And uh, anyhow, that's kind of some of the basis of the origins of Christianity. You mentioned the... There's a lot of similarities between the cult of Mithras and the cult of of the Catholic Church, or uh, I guess back in that day it would be either the Roman or the Byzantine versions of the Orthodox Church. But um, it's always like it always seems like the the connections are kind of you use the word circumstantial when when you were talking uh, about the existence of Jesus and the reason that. You brought up that he even exists is because there there is a movement of saying that there's not enough evidence that, that he was even a real uh, figure. Well, now if we try to connect um, the cult of Mithras with uh, Roman or Greek Christianity, um, you know, there's things like why were they doing the sign of a cross? Like, what did the cross mean to them? Why were they making the sign of a cross? Was this before or after they accepted the Jesus? Oh, long before, long before. And it wasn't on their forehead. They made the cross on their chest, okay? And that was a sign. They were making the cross because that marked the intersection of the equator with the path of the sun, okay? And that intersection is the vernal equinox or autumnal equinox. And that was the basis of forming this religion, that was the basis of why, this knowledge was the basis of forming the religion. That's why they made the sign of the cross. And they recognized uh, God the Father, the uh, Zoroaster sun god. They recognized him as very important. And uh, then his son, Mithra, and the holy life force, I'm not real clear I don't have a lot of information on that entity, but those three entities were what were mentioned when they made the sign of the cross on their chest as they entered the church. And I should say, Paul was one of the first writers of uh, that we have some of his writings. We don't have them all. We know there are more out there that we don't have. But uh, Paul, who had originally worked for the Sadducees in the temple to run down and uh, kill Christians, actually. He had an epiphany in which uh, Jesus appeared to him, and he was blinded for several days, and he became a 
Christian follower of Jesus. And apparently he started working for the Mithraic Church, going around to existing existing churches and also to synagogues to convert them to the new religion, this new Christian religion. And, of course, in the synagogues, he was beaten up and kicked, thrown out. <laughs> he didn't make much progress there. Uh, but the center of the Mithraitic Church, you might say the Vatican of the Mithraitic Church, was in the city of Tarsus in uh, southern, what is now Turkey. And Tarsus was like the Vatican to the Mithraitic Church. And Paul came from Tarsus, was uh, educated. Well, well, he wasn't educated. He was raised in that city. So he was well aware of the Mithraitic Church. You couldn't be a citizen of that town without being well-versed in the Mithraitic religion. And, which he certainly w- would have been. And uh, anyhow, apparently he was recruited to go around to existing churches. Now, church is a Greek word, not a Jewish word. And these were already in existence. And he was trying to convert them to switch from worshiping Mithra to worshiping Jesus. And he has some of our earliest Christian writings on this subject. Now, what happens is these religions, as new religions as they come up and develop, they kind of want to destroy anything in writing that contradicts their current beliefs. Okay? Uh, Let me give you some examples. Like, in the United States, most of our Bibles are some variation of the King James Version. Okay? written in 1600s. But there are other Bibles around. They're, the Catholic Bible is different. Okay? Greek Orthodox Bible. The Coptic Bible in Egypt. The Russian Orthodox Bible. And the Syrian Christian Bible. And let me give you an example in the Syrian Christian Bible, of which there are only fragments remaining, or large fragments, I mean, they're not little bitty paragraph things, they're large, hundreds of pages long, but they're still fragments. There are only three fragments that remain, and they're located in the uh, London Library, exactly. But in the Protestant Christian Bible that I'm most familiar with, the New Testament has Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that part of the story. Well, the Syrian Christian Bible doesn't break down into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's just one continuous story. Okay? And it's a little different from the story that we find in the King James Version. In the Syrian Christian version, Jesus does not die on the cross, okay? He survives crucifixion. Now, since that that story contradicts the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church that evolved later, since it contradicts what they're saying, there apparently was an effort to destroy these writings, okay? 
Now, a little different, a little aside from this, a uh, Islamic, uh, German Islamic scholar took the Quran. The Quran is uh, as a, is written in today in Arabic. In Arabic, has a lot of diacritical marks in it. These are marks like umlaut in German or tilde in Spanish, little marks above the letter. And uh, the Quran has about fifteen to twenty percent of the Quran written in Syrian, oh, written in Arabic, is not understandable. It doesn't make any sense. Now, when it's translated into English or some other language, it's it's kind of shoehorned into having other meanings, okay? But in the Arabic, it doesn't really make any sense. Now, what uh, Luxembourg did, that's the name of the German scholar, religious scholar did. He took away all the diacritical marks on, on it. And what's left is essentially Syrian Aramaic. And these uh, 20% of the Quran that is not understood in Arabic is understood in Syrian Aramaic. And what has happened, apparently, they took parts of the Syrian Christian Bible and padded the Quran with sayings from uh, the Syrian Christian Bible, which included the Gospel of Timothy. The Gospel of Timothy is not found in the New Testament. It was left left out. It wasn't considered worthy to be in there. But it's in the Syrian Christian Bible. It's also, parts of it is also in the Koran. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, as these religion, as these Christian religions matured, if they found anything that contradicted what they currently held belief in, these books were burned, of course. And the original uh, writings on Jesus is uh, called Q document, which stands for the word German word for quella. There was a book written before Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written, before these were written, there was another book called the Q document, which Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these Greeks, referred to and took stories from that to put in their writings of Jesus. And it's one of the most sought-after books of antiquity. And it, no copy can currently be found, probably because they were all destroyed, because some of what's written in there would counterdict the current belief in the Christian dogma at the time. I mean, this is common to destroy stuff that you, you disagreed with. But uh, anyhow, make those points. So why go through all that trouble of persecuting people with uh, divergent views, especially since if they were part of the, the myth Tribic mystery religion, and then they embraced this uh, pseudo-Jewish messianism. Why um, develop it into something else? Why don't just keep the the mix match of um, Greek ideas? Because 
it almost sounds like a conspiracy that that Paul went around reframing Mithraism to fit into this revelation of Jesus, and then that the, the the church fathers reworked the whole uh, cult to sound more biblical or Jewish or whatever. And then if anybody had a divergent view, they started slaughtering them. I don't believe, I don't know of any case where the Christians were slaughtering other Christians because of divergent views. Is that what you're saying? Well, I know that um, by the time of Constantine, that became the the imperial uh, perspective that if someone did not agree with the council, they would go after them. They came after the the Greek Christians and possibly the Syrian ones. So, um, are, are we still talking about the first century, or what time periods are you talking about when there was the destruction of documents that did not agree with them? Well, I'm talking about earlier than the uh, Council of Nicaea, okay? But it would have continued with the Council of Nicaea also, okay? But uh, the Christians, for the most part, after the Council of Nicaea, the Christians followed a policy of controlling all centers of education, centers, C-E-N-T-E-R-S schools, all schools that taught reading and writing or anything, anything. The Christians wanted to control these things, and they followed the policy of either shutting the school down or having one of their priests run the school, okay? And uh, at that time, anything that was written that disagreed with uh, the, uh, the official religious beliefs was destroyed. In fact, this this was instituted really to stamp out pagan religions, and it was successful in doing that. It was also successful in wiping out literacy. <laughs> you heard of the Dark Ages? That was precipitated by the Christian church, wiping out all education that they did not control. Okay? And one of the biggest holdouts was, uh, I'd call it, University and Library at Alexandria. And uh, the Bishop of Rome, I mean, not the Bishop of Rome, the Bishop of Alexandria would lead uh, mobs of people to attack uh, instructors at the university and also... uh, continually tried to close it down. He was not successful, but he was successful, and he caught one of the math professors that taught algebra there, Hypothea, a woman that taught algebra to uh, at the university. He caught her in her chariot and uh, dragged her off the chariot and had her flesh scraped from her bones with oyster shells, and the then threw her stool quivering body on a bonfire. This this was a little violent, I admit. Um, but uh, the University of Alexandria was finally shut down when the Muslims took took Alexandria, captured it. It took 
it took three years to burn all the scrolls in the Library of Alexandria by a baker. <laughs> a but it was common in uh, in Roman religion to be eclectic and um, kind of inclusive of other perspectives. Did, did they become... Go ahead. Oh, yes, sir. In fact, it was, it was very common to be a member of more than one religion at the same time. You could be a member of three religions at the same time with no problem. And uh, one of the main region, reasons for joining a religion was to become educated, to learn something. In fact, a lot of these mystery religions were started based on something scientific and if you want, or mathematical, going to uh, Pythagoras. If you wanted to learn this math or science or something, you had to join this religion. And it was very common for to be a member of two or three religions at the same time. So did they become militant to consolidate power because the Roman Empire was falling apart, or did they become militant because they embraced that aspect of the sectarian groups in uh, the Holy Land? Like, what What made them do that? Um, because it it created strife in some ways and then unity in others when, for the Romans, uh, you would think it would be more uh, helpful to have more inclusiveness and uh, to accept more uh, deities into their pantheon. Well, originally, before uh, Constantine, before Constantine, the Romans were very liberal in their religion. In fact, uh, before Constantine, uh, the Pope in Rome, and then when I say the Pope, the Pontiff Maxima, Julius Caesar was the Pope. Uh, their job, there would be a Pontiff Maximus and uh, two or three other Pontiffs below him. Their job was to properly perform uh, sacrifices to the various gods, okay? And uh, the Romans uh, worshipped, wanted to placate all the gods they could, okay? And they were very inclusive in this. And uh, if something went wrong in the Roman Empire, they thought it was because they weren't worshipping properly some god, in fact, when Hannibal invaded Rome uh, and had his big victory over the Romans at Cannae, the, uh, the pontiff of Rome decided the, re uh, the re reason for the defeat is that there was some god they weren't properly worshipping or placating. And it was decided it was Sybil, the god Sybil. Who was uh, the center of that religion was uh, on uh, the coast of Turkey, on the Mediterranean coast of Turkey, and they sent a Roman fleet over there to get the Sibyl and her books and bring her back to Rome. And at first, she was very reluctant, and the uh, the Roman admiral got ticked off and told her something. Look, Roman, we're desperate. You know, it's been decided we need to worship your God. Get your shit on this boat and 
do it properly, fast. And we're going to Rome. <laughs> and uh, they took her to Rome, and uh, they celebrated and started worshiping Sybil there in Rome. And she brought her navel stone. This was considered a rock that was the center of the earth with her. And there have been three naval stones in history that we know. One at Mount Olympus, one that the Sybil had, and one in Mecca, a meteorite that uh, the uh, Muslims worshipped this meteorite and the uh, house that uh, it's housed in. And these are considered naval stones. And the one in Mecca is the only one that still exists. But it's rusted and fallen apart in a lot of little pieces. The Romans could really were very liberal in their religious practices. They wanted to placate all the gods possible because it meant they would be victorious everywhere. Well, what was so attractive about uh, placating the, the Hebrew deity in for them uh, having the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, for that to be incorporated, because I don't see in the Mithraic religion anything related to sacrifice or someone dying in um, expiation, expiation of other people's misdeeds. So why was that an important element to bring in? Is it to stop the, the, the sacrifices and then take people's um, money and... And financial contributions instead? Like, have you read anything about the switch between uh, what people would call a, a cultic religion or a sacrificial system to a more veneration and donation based system? Well, the Mithraic religion in the churches, they did take up donations. That's true. But on sacrifice, uh, Jews didn't sacrifice humans, they, sacrifice, they offered up. Uh, animals for sacrifice and food for sacrifice. They did not sacrifice humans. That was strictly forbidden. And uh, also what was strictly forbidden was eating anything with blood on it. Particularly cannibalism was definitely forbidden in the Jewish religion. Even eating insects was forbidden. In fact, uh, I don't know which book, maybe the Luke talks about John the Baptist eating uh, locusts and honey. Well, they, Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't know too much about Judaism. Let's face it. They weren't Jews. They didn't claim to be Jews. They didn't claim to be disciples of Jesus. They never made that claim. As opposed to in the book of John. In the book of John, John writes that he was a disciple of Jesus. Uh, but uh, John the Baptist, who was considered uh, the initial, a very important, probably the initial leader in the kingdom of God movement in Judea, uh, he is thought to be an Eocene. And he apparently left the Eocene religion proper and started associating with non-Eocene Jews. And he would have been greatly restricted in his diet. And he would not have been able to eat most foods that most other Jews could eat. But one thing he could eat would be the honey bread 
fruit from the locust tree that grew along the River Jordan. Even today it grows there. It's a fruit that tastes as a honey taste to it. And he could have eaten that. And, of course, uh, the author, Luke, didn't know too much about uh, the River Jordan or the Essenes or anything else had uh, wrote that he was eating locusts and honey. Well, he was eating the honey breadfruit from the locust tree. Okay. They got a little, you know, a few things wrong here. And the main reason is because Matthew, Mark, the authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were Greeks that wrote. They wrote in Greek for Greeks. They didn't write in Hebrew for Jews. They didn't know Hebrew. They didn't know The only Jews they were familiar with was the Jews that argued against them, that uh, pointed out all the errors in their theology. And uh, anyhow... But again, why why would um, people who are involved with a, a Greek Roman cult um, take um, the Greek version of take Jesus as a savior? Oh, well, the, the the thing is, this story about Jesus surviving this crucifixion must have spread all in the area, and that was that was miraculous. He. He survived crucifixion. And uh, like I said, even though we know other people have survived crucifixion, uh, it's still, wow, that's quite something. When you were crucified, you were left up there to die. And, uh, of course, Jesus was taken down early. Even Pontius Pilate expressed amazement that he died so soon. Uh but he didn't die, of course. He survived. But this was a miraculous event, more miraculous than Mithra uh, ascending into heaven. Okay? And they thought that was this, make this guy a savior. They must have realized uh, Mithra was somewhat of a mythical character. Uh, no one claimed to ever see or know Mithra. Well, here you had, in uh, Judea, you had hundreds of people that had seen him, and probably hundreds that had fought with him. And so his existence was well verified back then. And I should, I mentioned the Kingdom of God movement. At, this, at the time of Jesus, there were four major groups down there. There were religious groups were the Essenes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Okay? And there were only all of the Sadducees that ran the temple in Jerusalem and their family and associates, priests, probably less than a thousand. And, and the Essenes were probably a few thousand, two or three thousand. The Essenes were very ascetic and thought the world was going to hell in the handbasket and only Eocenes were going to survive. And then there were the Gentile, or the uh, Pharisees. And the Pharisees, that's a term, something like you'd call Protestants today. There were very gradations of them. Okay, There were the uh, extreme that would 
followed certain dietary laws and everything, but the Pharisees were the only group, the first group that is known, the first religious groups to include morality in religion. And the Pharisees thought that morality was very important. And they taught with uh, parables, like uh, the Good Samaritan, that was the Pharisee parable. Okay? And they taught morality. Now, the Sadducees thought only uh, the 613 commandments that are in the Bible, in the Torah, the 613 commandments, not 10 commandments, as Christians think, there are 613 commandments. Those are all you have to follow to be religious, religious Jew. The Pharisees said no. Religion is more than this. It's also morality. Okay? And they would teach morality. And there was a fourth group. And he goes by various names. I use the Kingdom of God movement. And these had members all from uh, real fighting rebels to pacifists, from Sadducees to Essenes to Pharisees, most of them are Pharisees because that was the biggest group in Jerusalem or in Judea. And uh, they had uh, their main objection, their main philosophy was that we need to get rid of these evil Romans out of our kingdom and put God, if we do that, God will come back and take his proper place in the temple, in his house here in Jerusalem. He will come back and reside in the temple and put the world right and get rid of these Romans. We just have to keep these Romans out. And uh, they had had an armed force to do this. And uh, apparently... John the Baptist, who was leading this group, uh, was finally captured and executed. And after this time, apparently, Jesus took over the leadership of the Kingdom of God movement and apparently moved on Jerusalem. And uh, anyhow, that's another story I can get into, if you like. I've heard the idea of Jesus being a revolutionary in the past, and I always ask, like, where was his army and what was his plan? Because it seemed like a very poor planning for a military figure to get himself crucified. So how, what do you see within the gospel, the historical record of him preparing a, a battle against either the Romans or the, the authorities of, of the temple area? All right, well, let's, let's look at Jerusalem at this time, okay? The temple was, a, was an enormous platform. I forget for sure how many acres it was, but it was like maybe four or five acres in size, the temple platform, okay? And on this platform was located a uh, big temple, okay, where you would walk up and perform various sacrifices. It also located in the temple... Uh, at the very top was the house of God, I'm going to call it, or house of Yahweh, where Yahweh was supposed to reside, okay? But he wasn't there, apparently. Uh, and also on this uh, 
platform, I'm going to call it this park. It was really a park. Uh, there was also a synagogue that had been built there by freed Jewish slaves, <laughs> which is an interesting story. Uh, and let me tell you that story. When Herod, when the Romans appointed Herod the Great, and he's called Herod the Great Builder, when they appointed him as king of Judea, uh, Judea didn't want him. He had to, he took an army with him to capture Jerusalem to become the king there. And in this battle, uh, the Jewish soldiers that were defeated, they were sold as slaves, which is the common thing. That's what they did back then. And they sold them uh, in a market in Rome. And the thing was about these Jewish slaves, they made lousy slaves. <laughs> they wouldn't work one day a week, no matter how much you beat them. And they were very picky about the food they ate. <laughs> and they quickly acquired a uh, reputation of being lousy slaves, if you could imagine that. Well, uh, Jewish merchants in Rome uh, couldn't stand the fact that there were Jewish people that were enslaved in Rome. And so they started buying up these slaves at discounted prices because their owners were, thought they were terrible as far as being a slave. They didn't get to they did not get into the program. <laughs> and anyhow, the Jewish merchants in Rome bought back hundreds of these slaves. And when the slaves got back to Jerusalem, they decided and got permission to build a synagogue on the temple grounds. Okay, this four or five acre grounds. And... uh that's where that synagogue came from. But anyhow, next, when Herod the Great built this, right next to it is a fort. He built a fort, Fort Antolia, named after Mark Anthony, which we all know from history. Now, Mark Anthony and Herod the Great were best buddies. Okay, they were best friends. And they built this fort there because sometimes the people in the temple around Jerusalem there would revolt against Roman authority, and so this temple was supposed to suppress any revolt. This temple hold, held a cohort of soldiers, and that was like four companies. Four. A Roman company consisted of 80 men, and so at full strength there would be four 80-man companies stationed there with associated officers. Each Roman company had uh, was run by what we call a first sergeant. They didn't have any officers. The officers were really at the cohort level. There were maybe five or six officers associated with the cohort there. The rest of the Roman soldiers would be stationed in Caesarea, on the coast. This is a port city, and this is where Pontius Pilate would stay all the time, and he would have maybe a thousand soldiers. Uh, but that was the military situation. And there were more soldiers further north, like in Syria or Turkey, and Egypt that could be called upon if needed. 
And, uh, but the goal for a long time was for when John the Baptist was running things was to clear out the Romans. Now, really, all the Romans that had to be cleared out would have been in Jerusalem, actually, because once you got them cleared out, the theory was Yahweh would come back down to earth and empower all the Jews to finish kicking out the Romans. That was the mythology. And according to Josephus, the historian that wrote about the Jewish war that occurred uh, decades later, this organization, which I'm calling the Kingdom of God movement, had two military armies. And he said they hated each other. The commanders hated each other. Now, this is just supposition. I'm assuming these two military organizations or bands, they weren't real armies. I don't know how many people they would have had, maybe 500 people each or something like that. Existed, I'm assuming they existed in the time of Jesus when when the kingdom of God movement was starting up. And uh, that's just referral here. It's, you know, we're making suppositions here, assumptions stuff. But that's based on the writings of Josephus. And uh, so the idea was to move on to the temple, clean it out, and then Yahweh would come back down and put things right for the Jewish world. Now, to do this, you had a problem of the soldiers in the fort, Fort Anatolia. You had to neutralize them, either bottle them up where they couldn't get out or kill them, one or the other. We don't know which. And they may not have been Roman. Uh, when Herod the Great was alive, uh, they were manned by Jewish soldiers who were loyal to the Roman Empire. Okay? We don't know who were Romans, soldiers there, or Jewish soldiers. We don't know. But either one, they would have been loyal to the Roman Empire. And, and anyone trying to take over the temple, the temple, the, that fort overlooked the temple and had ramps leading down to the temple. You had to neutralize that military force. You couldn't go in there and just turn over a bunch of money-changing tables and everything. These soldiers would have poured out and put you out of business right then. So you had to have a force strong enough to neutralize the Anatolia fort. And so how many of that took and what they did with it, I, we don't know. We know there was some violence there because they talk about Jewish, uh, about Jesus turning over the money changers, hate their tables. Now, the reason there were money changers there was not change Persian money to Roman money or Roman money to, you know, some other kind. They were there because the money in circulation, mainly Roman money, had a figure stamped on Caesar's face was stamped on these coins. Well, it was against religion, Jewish religion to have any engraved figures in the temple area. So they had to change their money to Jewish money, Jewish coins, which were only legal in the temple, by the way. You couldn't purchase anything outside the temple. 
But if you wanted to go up there and buy some food or want to buy a lamb that sacrificed to Yahweh or something, you had to do it with Jewish money. And so before you went in, you would exchange all your Roman coins for Jewish coins. And then when you came out, you do the reverse. That's what the money changers were there for, to facilitate that. And the Sadducees definitely made money off this process. They ran this system. The temple was very much like the Bank of America, U.S. Steel, and everything. All enterprises rolled into one were run by the Sadducees. It's a money-making business. And not only that, Jewish merchants all over the world would send back 10% of their earnings to the temple. Uh, the temple was so rich that the roof over the temple, the roof over Yahweh's house, was solid gold with golden spikes on there, little golden spikes. And that was done so that pigeons wouldn't ship on Yahweh's roof. <laughs> they wouldn't land because of the spikes there. Uh, and it, years later, in uh, 69 CE, when the Jewish war was going on and they were attacking, the Romans were attacking the temple. The temple caught fire and the gold on the roof melted and ran down the sides of the temple. And it was so magnificent, such an unusual sight. The Roman army stopped fighting to watch this happen. And uh, Vespasian, the Roman emperor, uh, used this gold from the Jewish uh, temple to build the Colosseum that we know in Rome. That's where the money came from to finance it, from the roof of Yahweh's house. <laughs> A little aside there. Uh, but anyhow, the plan, uh, plan of the, after John the Baptist was killed, apparently Jesus moved on into Jerusalem to take over the temple. And actually, the plan itself worked as far as, the, you know, the only missing part was Yahweh didn't come back down to empire the Jews. <laughs> he was missing, <laughs> missing in combat, literally. He didn't show up, and he was supposed to, because apparently Jesus was able to hold the temple for several days, and which would have meant he had to neutralize the forces in Anatolia. And when uh, Pontius Pilate came from Caesarea with the, his Roman soldiers, he suppressed the revolt. And under Roman law, this is Roman law, you could only crucify two types of people. The Romans considered crucifixion to be the worst kind of punishment. Okay. If you were a slave and you killed your master, you were crucified. Okay? If you led a revolt against Roman authority, you were crucified. Okay? Now, an armed revolt against Roman authority, theoretically, they could crucify everyone in the army that was revolting. They didn't do that. They only picked the leaders to crucify. The rest, they sold as slavery and kept the money. Okay? Pontius Pilate 
uh, only crucified three people because of this. And uh, there were more than three people involved in this revolt, probably a thousand or so, maybe more. Uh, he sold them as slaves and kept the money. Uh, when Jesus was crucified on there, he was being crucified as a criminal revolting against the authority of Rome. And there were two other people that were crucified with him. They were made, today, they're made out to be uh, robbers or thieves. Rome didn't crucify those people. Robbers, they if they did anything to them, they'd give them ten lashes and kick them out. They didn't bother with robbers or thieves. Murderers, yes. Murderers, they would arrest and send to some coliseum to be eaten by lions or something. Uh, but uh, thieves, they didn't bother with. And it's been hypothesized that uh, the two other people that were crucified with them were the leaders of the two army military units that Josephus talks about in his histories, okay? Because if you were a leader of an armed force, you were definitely going to be crucified if you were captured, okay? All right, your turn. <laughs> okay, so um, in the past I've, I've said that um, the reason that made the message of Jesus unique, and this is, I guess, coming from a traditional perspective, was because it's it's portrayed as there was a message of peace, a message of um, reconciliation, and another series that people came and, and doctored the the Gospels or the, the New Testament to make it more pro-Roman, but there was plenty of revolutionaries in the, in the Jewish uh, nation at that time that fought and died. There was plenty of revolutionaries in the Roman Empire that fought and died. Um, why, I know you mentioned the idea of him, uh, surviving the crucifixion as being very attractive and, and powerful for the mystery cults, but what made, uh, this specific revolutionary so impactful to also his followers because, um, you have the issue, okay, Jesus survives, so then what happens to him? Does he just fade into oblivion and why are his followers so willing to die for for his cause, and I guess if it's the kingdom movement instead of the Jesus movement, they're fighting for the kingdom of God. But um, the way it's portrayed in in Christian history in the New Testament is that they all get martyred, and that martyrdom itself is a form of uh, bringing the message out. So were they martyr in the process of overthrowing the the Roman Empire? What what do you gather from his followers after his attempted crucifixion. Well, you have to remember the martyrs. Uh, there are no were no martyrs in Jewish in the Jesus's Kingdom of God movement. Okay, the Kingdom of God movement. There were no Christians. Christianity didn't exist. Jesus had never heard the word Christian. Okay, he was a Jewish rabbi. Okay, and they didn't have any martyrs back then. The martyrs came about later. And, uh, well, after Christianity was established as a religion, okay, uh, 
the martyrs were Christian martyrs. They weren't Jewish at all. Okay? Judea did, rejected this uh, mystery religion in total uh, for very fundamental reasons. They didn't believe in cannibalism, for one thing. Uh, also didn't believe this idea that you could be punished for someone else's sin. They, that was completely against Judaic law. Uh, so martyrs came about from Christianity itself, okay? And uh, there were various uh, episodes throughout the first 300 years of, of various martyrism. It, did, it wasn't continue, continuous by any means. But the Romans, even though they were very inclusive in their religious belief, they found that revolts very often happened because new organizations occurred, such as religions or fire departments. We have one case uh, very well documented about a Roman governor in Turkey. This city, I can't remember the city, wanted to establish a volunteer fire department. And the Roman governor thought this was a great idea, a good idea. But the Roman emperor at the time and before him had forbidden any new organizations to take to be formed, new religions or fire departments or any organization, because these had turned out to be centers of revolt. Okay? And so the governor wrote to the emperor for permission. You know, I said, I'm on a, I think this is a good idea. and But the emperor said, no, we can't do this. No, we don't know what kind of revolutionary things are going to occur from this. And he forbid it, forbade it. And that same attitude was against new religions, of which Christianity was one of them, okay? Even though they weren't revolutionary as far as trying to overthrow the Roman Empire at this time, uh, at all. In fact, and they had included this idea of morality in their religion, which uh, the Pharisees had started, and since Jesus was a Pharisee and preached morality, uh, the Mithraic churches that converted to uh, Jesus as being their savior they included morality, too, which distinguished them from other mystery religions, at the t all other religions in the Roman Empire. In fact, there were Greeks, Greek scholars. We have been writing, they were questioning Christians. They said, is, is, is Christianity a religion or a philosophy? Because only philosophy up to that time included morality. No religion included morality. Well, it was a little confusing to the Greeks as to what Christianity was. Is this a religion or is this just a philosophy? What is this? And uh, so that was something very unique with Christianity. Now, later, persecutions. Around uh, when, around, I'm going to say 300 BCE or before Constantine, Diocletius, Constantine's boss was emperor of the Roman Empire. His second in command, whose name I cannot remember, 
uh, his second in command was a, a force in the Mithratic religion. And he was very much against suppress, or very much in favor of suppressing Christianity because it was so similar to the Mithraic religion. And he instituted lots of persecutions against Christians at this time, the worst ones. And uh, previously there had been other persecutions against Christians, but the worst one was uh, before, just before Constantine took power. And uh, he did it because the similarity between the two religions was so great. And uh, he wasn't able to do this. And uh, when Constantine became emperor, he favored Christianity. At that time, the Christians turned on the Mithraic churches and started uh, killing the fathers of these churches or what we know, they would chain them to the uh, wall in the, in the church and then bury the churches under earth and stone. And uh, they started wreaking revenge against the Mithraic church, greatly trying to suppress it. And that's one of the reasons, after the Council of Nicaea, the Christian church wanted to control centers of education because they taught these religious beliefs uh, like the Mithraic church did. And essentially, you couldn't run a school unless you were a member of the church, a priest. Okay? And if you didn't have a, a priest running it, they were you had to shut the school down. And they, it took them hundreds of years to enforce this. Eventually, they succeeded in, in two purposes. One, they controlled education. And two, they got rid of all the pagan religions. Uh, and three, they got the Dark Ages. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, if you ever wondered where the Dark Ages came from, it wasn't from those barbarians coming in from the north. It was from the Catholic or the Christian church. I don't know. Uh, I guess you could call them Catholic. They were Eastern Orthodox. And so I usually learn, use the term Catholic religion after the Protestant Reformation. There were, then there was definitely Catholics and Protestants. But before that, there were Eastern Orthodox and Roman Orthodox and Russian Orthodox, for that matter. But what else can I tell you? <laughs> so when they became the the official religion of the empire, when did um, like do you see the the split between the Roman uh, pontiff or bishop and the Greek one? And the uh, I know there's a bishop of Jerusalem and one of uh, Syria and one of Egypt. Did all those splits happen because the Mithraic religion was very complicated and, and difficult to figure out? Because the picture that we get in the West is that Christianity is a monolith and that everybody believes the same thing. But in reality, if you study um, ancient sources, you realize that there was pockets of different Christian groups all throughout the Mediterranean and they all believe different things. And even in the New Testament, you see that there were different schools, like the 
followers of Matthew, the followers of um, of different um, perspectives regarding this this figure of Jesus. So did they split up over, um, you know, were they splitting hairs or was it as intense as, as they, they like to claim that, you know, the nature of God has to be defined in a certain way. If not, everybody's a heretic and there's the heretic hunting aspect of, of the Christian religion. Well, before the Council of Nicaea, okay, before that, there were absolutely variations of Christian belief, okay? There was no official Christian belief. And uh, uh, there were different pockets of, of religion, really Christian religious belief. And the, uh, that was one of the purposes of the Council of Nicaea, to say, all right, if you're calling yourself a Christian, you have to believe this, okay, and not this. <laughs> and uh, that was the main purpose of the Council of Nicaea. And uh, they had the uh, force of Roman law or force of Constantine to back them up in this. Uh, one thing about the pontiff, uh, before Christianity, there were popes in Rome, of course. Like I said, Julius Caesar was pope. And the job of the pontiffs were to perform sacrifices correctly, absolutely correctly, in order to placate different gods. Well, sometime around uh, when the Vis- Visigoths conquered Rome, I don't know, 450 CE, I'm not sure about the date there. Anyhow, just before that happened, the Bishop of Rome essentially declared himself as Pontiff, as Pontiff Maxima. He became the Pope of Rome. And uh, some of the, after the Visigoths, was it the Visigoths? I forget who it was that conquered Rome around that time. Uh, the people of Rome, many of the people of Rome, said the reason this happened is because the pontiff didn't make proper sacrifices to all these gods. You know, the, the Catholic bishop took over the title pontiff, but he didn't make any sacrifices to any of these pagan gods, and that's why Rome was overrun. <laughs> but, uh, anyhow. So going back, um, you know, there, there's a group in, in Iraq that still venerates or follows John the Baptist. Is there groups in Persia that still follow Mithras as just the basic myth? religion and Zoroasterism too so, so it's kind of like when people say you know how is it that we evolved from monkeys if monkeys are still there um, the original uh, cults or, or religions are still there so do they feel like they've been distorted like uh, I know you mentioned that you have met Zoroastrians in the past like how, how do they, yes how do they react to this uh, takeover of, of Christianity over the world and, and, in a sense, stealing their ideas or taking some of their concepts? Well, there's no no hostility that I'm aware of. And uh, they just still practice their religious beliefs. And, uh, of course, in, uh, in Iran, of course, you have to be very careful 
about practicing your religious beliefs, but the Iranians have been pretty pretty open to other religions. They haven't squashed, you know, killed them off. And uh, so there is some amount of religious freedom in Iran. And uh, you just can't proselytize. You can't try to get converts. So, uh, but I, uh, the people that I've met here in Houston that were practicing Zoroasterism, they didn't mention anything about Christianity taking over some of their religious beliefs or anything. They just still practice their own stuff. This is something I often ask uh, scholars when we have them on the show. Where do you think the anti-Jewish uh, bias from the New Testament comes from? Does it come from a Greco-Roman um worldview that despises foreigners, especially the ones that are kind of sectarian and and secluded and and they won't participate in the in the Roman religions? Or is it something specific about um you know, some some people call it the the like almost like a fatricide or matricide where the daughter religion tries to eradicate the the foundation by speaking ill of it or trying to um, no, I don't think so. No, no. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they wrote this, one of the purposes, one of the main purposes of writing their Gospels was to explain to the Roman world. Uh, you have to remember, the Jewish war had just finished, was just finishing when they wrote their Gospels. Okay? They were trying to explain to the Romans, we're not Jews. Okay? Even though Jesus was a Jew, we ain't. <laughs> okay? Don't associate us with these Jews in Jerusalem. We ain't Jews. That was one of the purposes of writing this. In fact, they hinted they didn't like the Jews. <laughs> okay? Uh, and they were doing it to kind of educate the Greeks and Romans that they weren't Jews. And uh, because of this, in the Middle Ages, this was uh, the basis for anti-Semitism. Okay? The expression was, the Jews killed Jesus. Well, of course, Jews didn't kill Jesus. The Romans executed Jesus. And for a good reason. He revolted against them. And, uh, but that's not how it was, uh, you know, put forward in the Middle Ages. And the anti-Semitism that was expressed uh, today or in Nazi Germany and everything has its origins in the original writings of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and then how they were interpreted in the Middle Ages. In fact, I view, I view uh, the Nazi anti-Semitism as a complete failure of Christianity, actually. I mean... Uh, the father of the Protestant religion um, uh, came from Germany, Martin Luther, you know. And the southern part of Germany was very Catholic, okay? In Bavaria, they're all Catholics. Uh, the Pope in Rome, Pope John, during the Nazi period, he was a collaborator with the Nazis, actually collaborated with them. 
And I well, t- tell us more about, about that because in this show we we like to this uh, Bill Mitz. So I, I've never heard that. I've heard that he was in a in a cat camp himself. How was he a collaborator? Oh, look, all this, all this, all this comes from a book called Hitler's Pope. Okay, and a, uh, a Catholic scholar started researching this to disprove. It is, he said his original goal was to disprove this these collaboration stories about John uh, Pope John collaborating with the Nazis. But he said, and he got access to all these secret files in the Vatican and stuff that he did his research. He he wrote this book and he said it's overwhelming evidence of the collaboration between John and and the Nazis. And uh, not John and Hitler, I don't think they ever met. But apparently uh, when Pope John was a uh, either an archbishop or cardinal in Bavaria, it was in the 20s, there was a lot of uh, problems with the uh, communists there taking over and killing people in Bavaria. And Pope John became a very anti-communist individual. And Hitler was seen as a stalwart against communism. Well, the same thing is true in England. The the, uh, House of Lords was very much in favor of Hitler and initially much to the chagrin of Churchill, and uh, but they favored uh, Hitler because he was so anti-communist, and the same thing was with uh, Pope John. But uh, but this this you, you say Pope John, but you're th- are you talking about Pope Pius the the twelfth? No, I think it was Pope John. Who who was Pope in the forties? Uh, Hitler's Pope. The the book Hitler's Pope is uh, the secret history of Pius the Twelfth by John Cornwell. Oh, okay. Well, I may have the wrong. I thought it was Pope John, but I'm, I could be wrong on that. I think that was a Pope after, and then I thought you were talking about Pope John Paul, who was um, who was at a camp during the Nazi era. Uh, but we're talking about the Pope who was in power at the time of the Nazis. Right. That's the one. That's the one. And. Uh, very interesting book. I mean, he's uh, the author is a real scholar. There, it's uh, he, uh, a lot of interesting stuff there. But this anti, and that's why I consider the rise of the Nazis is really a failure of Christianity, fundamental Christianity. Not to get too personal, um, did you come out of the Christian community? Because um, there's a show I interviewed the the host uh, from the. Uh, thinking atheist, and he just had uh, Bart Erdman as his guest, and they were talking about how they were both Christians, and then one became a historian, and the other one became an uh, atheist activist, and it and it's like uh, their life calling to either uh, pinpoint issues with Christianity or to flat out um, refute Christianity. Uh, what what is your uh, purpose in sharing this information, and do you have a personal uh, conviction? or uh, transformation that came from from learning this? No transformation. Uh, I come from a Protestant background. My family was. 
But I was always interested in history and facts, okay, as opposed to uh, myths and stuff. And I always questioned things growing up as a kid, much to the chagrin of my parents and some teachers. <laughs> but uh, I was more interested in what really happened or what, in like, uh, I remember asking my mother, uh, what is Father, Son, Holy Ghost? Where did that come from? Because I knew it wasn't Judaic. But she didn't know either. She gave me some answer, but it was obvious she didn't know. But to answer questions like that, where did this come from? Where did this belief come from? Where did this practice come from? And uh, that's kind of Really, after I got out of college, initially after I graduated the first time, I decided to follow a reading program on um, Western civilization. Why did Western civilization become so dominant and important? And kind of a corollary of that is uh, the origins of religions and Christianity in particular. Where did that come from? How did that evolve? And that was kind of a corollary to finding out about Western civilization. So that was kind of where this all developed. In your studies, um, why um, why embrace the Old Testament if the Mithraic religion was being infused with the New Testament Hebrew figure? Oh, good question. Good question. Good question. Okay. Uh, a couple reasons. One is, if the claim is Jesus died for our sin, why did Jesus die? Okay. Well, the answer was for our sin. What sin? <laughs> I mean, what sin? Well, they went back to the Old Testament about the story of Adam and Eve, which I talked about earlier. But also, this new religion, this new religion of Christianity had to sell itself to the public on street corners all over the Greek and Roman world. Now, one of the selling points in these religions, the older your religious documents are, the more authentic your religion is. Okay? So, if this new religion, Christianity, could tie itself to some old religious works, old books, the more authentic it was in selling it to the populations. Okay? And so, it was very beneficial for two reasons. One, we're tied to an old religion, old religious books here. We go back to the this Jewish book, the Old Testament, okay? That was one big selling point. And the other reason was to answer the question, Jesus died for what sin? <laughs> okay, what sin? Well, like, oh, here's a sin. Adam ate from the tree of knowledge, okay? And... So, uh, it's kind of curious, Adam ate from the tree of knowledge. Like I said, he didn't eat from the tree of ignorance. He was punished for eating the tree of knowledge. And there's always been, with all religions, okay, uh, they don't like knowledge, okay? They want the religions to be based on faith, not knowledge, as opposed to science is not based on faith, it's based on knowledge, 
okay? So there's always going to be a conflict between religious beliefs and knowledge, you know, science based on knowledge. There's always going to be a conflict there. And, uh, and um, well, the reason I bring it up is because um, one of the, the difficult things to establish is how popular or how well-known was um, the Jewish canon up to that point. We know that there was the 70 rabbis that translated it to Greek in Alexandria, the Septuagint. So, yeah. But was it just um, a compendium that was available to philosophers and scholars, or was did they have copies that would pass around to people? Because, you know, they say that in the Middle Ages, people were ignorant or uh, unlearned, and that you would need art and, and liturgy and other types of, almost like doing a play for them to get them to connect with the, the message. Um, how can you point to Isaiah if no one's ever read Isaiah? So what were... Were they trying to, was Paul, when he was talking to, to different people, was he trying to uh, convince the, the head guy who was a scholar and knowledgeable of different religions and, and texts, and then he could disseminate that information to the public? Well, you have to remember, the church wanted to control all centers of education. So if you had any education, you were a church member, okay? And whatever beliefs the church wanted to disseminate or claims they wanted to make had to come from Catholic priests. There were a few exceptions to this. One very interesting exception is uh, uh, King, King Alfred the Great in England. He was literate. He didn't get his literacy from the church. He could read and write. And a uh, very interesting story. I could talk for a while on that. I won't do it. But for the most part, uh, education was all controlled by the church. Like I said, it was a, a policy that was followed for hundreds of years to get this control. And once you control all education, okay, they control all of it for the most part. They could say whatever they wanted. Who's going to challenge them? And it wasn't until literacy and the printing press started coming about in Europe that uh, you had people started questioning these things. It wasn't until, uh, you know, Martin Luther and other people, uh, and the Bible was translated into English and German and other languages that you started, other people started reading this stuff. Before that, the church had a total monopoly on education. In fact, when universities in the Middle Ages, when universities started, in, particularly in Northern Europe and Paris and Germany and places like that, if you went to the university, you were a member of the church. Your head was shaved. You were a monk. Okay? And uh, you functioned at the university under religious law, not civil law. Religious law, and there were plenty of episodes, of, I'm thinking of the University of Paris, where college-age students would have drunken riots in town, and the civil authorities could do nothing about it because they were under religious law. <laughs> 
not civil law. There would be complaints to the local bishop about this. And uh, but if you were to if you wanted to study study anything in a university as a student, you were a official member of the clergy. So so what happened to Jesus after he survived the crucifixion? Uh, is it like the movie The Last um, Temptation of Christ, where he got married and had kids, and then he died during the the revolt? Or I don't know about any of that stuff. Uh, that's even more circumspect than anything else. He would. We know he. The Roman guard had stuck his spear in his side and, you know, wounded him gravely. In all probability, uh, he died of disease or something uh, shortly afterwards. And. Uh, these other stories about him traveling to India and stuff like that is, you know, there's not even circumstantial evidence to that. And so uh, I kind of discount all that stuff. He probably died a year or two later, maybe even less. But the recordings of this, his survival, would have been, if they would have been found, like the Q document that we know existed, if the church had found that, they would have destroyed it, burned it, gotten rid of it, because it contradicted their official belief. And so, uh, anyhow. Anything else from other mystery religions that you see connected to Christianity? Uh, go ahead. Oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. Uh, in the uh, civil, I mentioned the... My Friday's religion was just for men, and but there was like the woman's auxiliary, okay, and that was the civil religion, and the atis religion were also there, and some of their beliefs went into Christianity, like Palm Sunday comes from them. Uh, their belief was that uh, atis went into the city before he died. It, the palm leaves were spread down as he traveled with a donkey or something over them and stuff. But there, yeah, there are other pieces of this uh, mystery religions that entered into Christianity. And that was fairly much common today when uh, Christianity was trying to take over uh, the religious belief of Mexican Indians. Frequently, their myths are encompassed into uh, Christian belief, even today in Mexico. And uh, as as uh, Christianity spread into uh, Europe, the Celtic worship of the goddess Easter was encompassed into uh, Christianity. I mean, Easter is really a uh, Celtic goddess that uh, where hares and eggs are a celebration of uh, spring and rebirth. And so uh, that was one of the main reasons for Christianity spreading and taking over some of these other pagan beliefs. They would encompass them into the re Christian religion, and some of them stuck. <laughs> uh, 
like Easter, uh, the ones in Mexico or South America uh, did not take over the whole Catholic uh, religious belief then, but uh, they're local. In their local Christian beliefs, they've taken over. And this is one of the uh, ways of converting pagans into Christianity, particularly in the Catholic Church, of course. Because um, there's two books that I have in my possession. I have The Jesus Mysteries and Pagan Christ. Jesus Mysteries was by Timothy Free Freck and Peter Gandhi. And they say that Christianity comes from uh, the cult of Dionysius. Um, and then Pagan Christ claims that it comes from um, Persian and Babylonian influence because they believe that uh, the king had to be sacrifice for the people or something like that and that um, all these ideas were um, roaming around in the time of, of Jesus and they were incorporated into that narrative um, do you because my real question is every scholar or every researcher finds their version of what happened or their own what I would call personal Jesus and it's either a revolutionary a charismatic leader um, apocalypse, uh, apocalypsis, uh, or some pagan style figure that was incorporated. So, um, are, can all these things be true, or is there a way to discern which one uh, makes more sense or is more historical? Well, I think it was a German scholar that said every generation comes up with its own historical Jesus. <laughs> uh, all, most of what you said, uh, I would practically concur with. There are various ways of looking at this, and you can magnify different parts. The thing about Dionysus is some of these mystery religions are very similar, but the similarity between Mithraic mysteries and early Christianity is just overwhelming. And, uh, but... Uh, the thing about uh, connection to Eastern religions like Zoroasterism and stuff, absolutely correct. And this idea that the king dies, this goes back to a much earlier uh, religious practice and beliefs. That, uh, who was the guy that uh, wrote all those books on that subject? Uh, let me go in. Let me find uh, the author. Uh, Campbell, Joseph Campbell. <laughs> oh, he's great on this. Uh, he wrote lots of books on early religious beliefs, much earlier than what we're talking about. And uh, it was very common for there to be two leaders, two kings, or a king and a religious leader. And this was very common. And one of one religious practice was messengers to the gods. If you wanted to tell gods your god something, you sent a messenger. You sacrificed a guy that would go and spread the message, tell the message to God. You killed him. And the practice was uh, this was a voluntary thing. Usually, always voluntary thing. The Celtics practiced this. Uh, you 
would get for a year. You could do anything you want in town, in the village or town, wherever it was. You could go in to have anyone's wife. You could eat any food. You could buy any, You could do anything you wanted. At the end of the time, you would be killed, and your soul would go up to heaven and speak to God. Okay? It's a common religious belief all around the world. The uh, Aztecs practiced this. They had a ball game, uh, something similar to soccer, where they would kick a ball around a soccer field and it had to go through a loop, and there would be two teams of five men each. The captain of the winning team, okay, the winning team, would be sacrificed to God <laughs> and to carry a message to God. The Celtics did the same thing. Uh, this was practiced in India, too, until uh, the British put a stop to it when they started taking over India. And uh, the Spartans had two kings. Okay, This is based on... Uh, an older practice of having a king, another superior leader like the king, who was also the religious leader, who was frequently sacrificed, by the way. But uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph Campbell talks about all this extensively and uh, does a fabulous job of it. Too. And anyhow, that's where a lot of a lot of what you're saying. I don't have a big problem with, okay? Uh, and it goes back to this uh, German scholar saying, gosh, every generation has their own religious Jesus <laughs> or own, own historical Jesus, I should say. And uh, But the main thing I'm trying to push, I like to push, is education. If people read, you know, Find out where these beliefs come from. They're not secret. There are books published on this subject, literally. And uh, different viewpoints. Dig into it. Make up your own mind. And uh, there's a ton of them out there. And most Christians know nothing, very little about their own religion. They don't realize every time you go in a church have the Eucharist. You're committing cannibalism. That's eating flesh and blood. That's cannibalism. Now, of course, uh, the Catholic Church actually says this is the actual body of Christ. Actual blood, you know, officially. The Pope said that. So they're actually committing cannibalism. The Protestants say, well, this is symbolic. We're just doing symbolic. And they admit it's not actually flesh and blood. But they're practicing uh, pretend cannibalism officially in a church, in a religion. You're practicing pretend cannibalism? That's terrible. You shouldn't be doing that. But anyhow. Last question. Um, you mentioned in our e email exchange that there was up to 10 different messiahs. You mentioned that Joseph Campbell had like a, a kingly leader and then 
a priestly one. What what are the other types of messiahs that, that were common around that time? Oh, I used to have a book on the subject. I had about ten of them. It was a horrible read, though. It was terrible. But it named quite a few of them. I don't remember. I can't give you a lot of detail. Oh, I did. There is one. Oh, and I can't give you the name. I'd have to look it up. But yes, there were other religious leaders that, uh, just like Jesus, in the Roman Empire, okay, in the Roman Empire, the Romans actually crucified for revolting against the authority of Rome. Jesus wasn't the first one. There were others. Historical. They're historical. And even though there's nothing historical reference to the crucifixion of Jesus, there are to these other religious leaders, fanatics, religious fanatics, that the Romans crucified. And uh, it would take me a... How How do you define fanatic? Oh, a guy that has religious beliefs that are... Uh, different from what is considered normal for the time. And uh, it would be age-specific, you know. Uh, what would be fanatic 2,000 years ago might not be today. What would be today considered fanatic, fanatical uh, 100 years from now wouldn't be, you know. It would be something... That the norm, the people of the religion wouldn't consider normal of that date. Well, we want to thank you for your time. Uh, we appreciate you doing this uh, two-parter or two-hour audio documentary with us. Um, it's always good to hear different perspectives and to uh, expand our horizons. So, again, thank you for your time. You're welcome. You're welcome.